And we're up to episode 16. Give it a few more seconds here and then we'll start for everybody that's kind of standing by and waiting. We're here every Monday, by the way, and we are live according to our sources behind the scenes here. We appreciate you tuning in to this episode of Scale Up Heroes. This is episode 16. Uh, here we are all about bringing you the best minds with the best real life experiences when it comes to scaling up businesses. Our panelists every week are the heroes that have taken on the difficult odds and are living to tell the tale. I'm your host, Randy Cantrell, coming to you from Dallas, Texas. Our, our hosts are all over the globe. To our viewers, we want to especially invite you to visit our website, scaleupacademy.io. Today, we're talking about scaling up talent. And so we welcome our viewers. We welcome our guests to the show. I want to introduce today's moderator, Nina Devote. I knew I would mess it up, Nina. I've practiced it in my head. Okay, say it right so I know it. It's Nina Davouge. Davouge. I practiced it, I promise, but I don't speak French, but there's that. So Nina Davouge. Uh, Nina is an HR Kickstarter. She is in Singapore. Welcome and thanks for moderating today's panel, Nina. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and clearly definitely an honor. Um, so thank you, Randall, and thank you, everybody, for being here. I really want to just um, introduce my panelists. Um, but before that, just to set some context, too. Um, it takes four things to scale up a company. Product, um, a proven revenue business model, sufficient capital, and a scalable organization. Most scale-up or startup founders actually focus on the first three, forgetting that they need to build a scalable organization. And as a result, the human part of the organization lacks sometimes this, this much and sometimes this much uh, behind the business needs of the organization. And when it's time to really scale, all these challenges come at one go. So I'm here with my panelists, my colleagues from the industry, um, Azish from Smart Karma, Georgina from Paddle, Peter from Chapel. Sure, Sure. Shoped, uh, sorry about that, and Zaina from Unbabel um, to really, you know, tell you a little bit more about what's going on in the industry. So Arzish, maybe over to you, um, if you can start by kicking off with introductions, my fellow comrade from Singapore. Sure, thank you, Nina. Uh, pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to um, participating and uh, contributing to this panel discussion. Uh, so my name is Arzish Baki. I work for Smart Karma, which is a uh, Singapore headquartered startup. We were founded in Singapore and that's where headquarters are uh, back in 2014. Uh, it's been four years since then. Uh, I was employee number five, I believe. So um, early employee. Um, we've kind of scaled our uh, headcount from uh, what was four or five people to now uh, roughly 40 in Singapore. And uh, I was sent to London in September of last year to build out the uh, United Kingdom operations for the firm. So I've scaled, um, I use the word scale a lot, but um, I've basically built up uh, the headcount here from um, just myself to uh, what we have now is four full-time employees, three part-timers and myself. So we've effectively built an office um, in the past nine months. 
and I'd love to share my uh, observations on that. Uh, thanks. Thank you. Zena, over to you. Yeah, thank you, Nina. Excited to be here. Um, so I'm the People Ops Director at Unbabel. Uh, and Unbabel is a, an AI-powered um, human-refined translation as a service company uh, based in Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, we also have some offices uh, in the US, in New York, and, and uh, in San Francisco. And we work with companies like Skyscanner and Rovio and King. Uh, we have about 130 people at the moment here in Lisbon. Um, and we've doubled in size since I joined a few months ago. So we're uh, on our journey to scaling up. Wow. Well done. Thank you. Peter from Thank Showpad. You. Of Showpad. You'll never forget that again. <laughs> Hi, so I'm Peter. Um, very glad to be here. I'm the VPHR, VP of People of Showpad. Uh, Showpad is founded in Belgium about seven years ago. Uh, we still have our uh, global HQ there with about 150 people today in Belgium, uh, about 330 globally. Uh, I joined about 18 months ago as the first VPHR. And so we've doubled uh, in revenue and in people in those 18 months. Um, Shopat is a software platform. Um, it's the first fully integrated sales enablement uh, platform. So where companies basically built a bridge between sales and marketing, put all their content on our platform and sales people use all the technology that is out there from machine learning to artificial intelligence to retrieve content, to get conversation analytics on it, uh, and also to get digital coaching on when they are uh, using content. Uh, and so today we have, so we have six offices worldwide, 150 in Ghent, 25 people in London, about 10 people in Munich. And then we have about 100 people in Chicago, uh, about 50 in San Francisco, uh, and 25 in Portland, Oregon. So we're, that's our geographical uh, footprint. And about 50-50 in terms of revenue between Europe and the US. Thank you. Thanks for that. Sounds very exciting. You should have had technology when I was a salesperson. Um, all right, Ger Ger Georgina, over to you. Georgiana. Hi, hi everyone. I'm really happy to be here and be part of this uh, this panel. Um, so my name is Georgiana. Um, everybody calls me Georgina. That's okay. <laughs> um, I am lucky enough to to manage the talent team here at Paddle. Uh, we are a checkout marketing and analytics platform uh, that helps over 800 companies sell software globally. Uh, we are based in London. So when I joined seven months ago, we were around 35. Uh, and I came came in to, to help scale up and hire mostly in product and engineering, which are our main pain points as a tech company. Uh, we've now scaled up to 90 people and we are looking to grow to 180 uh, by the end of the year. Uh, we are also opening uh, an office in San Francisco this year. So yeah, exciting times for, for the talent acquisition team here at Paddle. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you all. Um, everybody clearly is at slightly different stages. Some are a bit, bit more, a bit bigger than the others. Um, so let, let's kind of draw this commonality, right? And to the, 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 the one thing that's underlined this whole conversation, what does it really mean to scale up? Um, Georgiana, now that I've got you on the panel, um, let's start with you. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, so it's really a complex question. And obviously I am more qualified to talk about it from like a recruitment talent perspective. 
Um, and scaling up recruitment, it's not just about the pressure of getting as many people through the door as possible. It's also about creating a great candidate experience, uh, putting some processes in place around recruitment, onboarding, you know, creating new teams and even departments. And as you create those departments, deciding if you should build a specific department from the bottom up or the other way around, like bringing in a head of department that can build their own team. Um, it's about constantly learning, you know, stealing best practices from other businesses, looking into diversity. That's really important. I think it should be done early on. I know a lot of businesses that have scaled up and now they're 200 people or over 200 people and realize they don't have any, you know, minorities or women uh, throughout the company and especially in leadership roles. And it's also about making mistakes, learning from them. And, you know, having lots and lots of fun in the process, hopefully. Awesome. Anyone else wants to contribute? Sure. I, I think for me, uh, the biggest uh, challenge of scaling talent starts with uh, the fact that I think every successful organization is based on a strong culture. And if you scale quickly, it is very hard to maintain that. And uh, to use a personal stat, I've been 18 months at Showpads and more than half of the people have been there less long than, than I have. And what it means is, um, we've so we've hired 90 people this year, we've hired 90 uh, in the previous six months, so you have about 180 people over the last 12 months. And just spending sufficient time on, um, you know, not just onboarding, but making sure that you pass on your culture and your DNA, I think cannot be stressed enough and so what we do at Showpad, which is a major investment of both time and, and, and money is we bring the whole company one week a year together so we've brought 250 people one week to florida and we will do that again next year probably with 400 people just because there is no other way in getting everyone on the same page and this, this is just one aspect of passing on the culture but to me that is a key component and one of the biggest challenges and when you scale uh, when you scale so quickly I think that's a really good point, Peter, actually. And I think recruitment, Georgiana, you're, you're right, is, is, is really crucial when you're scaling a business. But I think the culture is also so important. And I think a, a big part of that is, is having a really strong uh, senior management team uh, supported by really skilled managers. And that goes a long way to helping develop that culture uh, as well, I find. I think uh, I've, I think something that Peter um, said really stood out there. Um, so for us, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we're headquartered in Singapore, but um, as I'm building the team out here, we make it a point to send every new hire we have um, to Singapore to spend some time with um, you know the team there, because it's crucial that they kind of understand the DNA, the culture that um, we have in the company at headquarters where the founders are situated as well. Um, and one of the main reasons why I was sent here to, to set up the office is because um, like you mentioned earlier, um, to kind of continue to inculcate that same culture, that same DNA into whoever we bring on board um, in a foreign market. I think it's a very important consideration for any, any company that's scaling uh, across the seas. Mm -hmm. Maybe one other aspect that is interesting to highlight there is that I think the way you, you uh, keep that culture is, first of all, you need. So I think ideally your culture comes from your founders and then they need to exemplify it. But also I think their involvement in hiring is super important. And so at Showpad, the CEO, um, until uh, we were more than 250 people were still meeting every single candidate. And even today, he still gets the option to see everyone we bring in. And I think that investment is super important. And you can definitely see that reflected in the people we have. 
And last but not least, also, you need to have the courage to also, when you need to fire, if people are not fitting into that culture because they lack some key components. And that's uh, as certainly as you grow and you, you, you enter more like two, three hundred people, um, that's not always that, that, that easy. I mean, Shopart has, for example, be humble as a key value. And when you grow and you bring in very experienced people, some people have lost that along the way. And it takes some courage at times to say this is not this is not us. We, 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 we cannot uh, we cannot live with that sort of behavior. So. Thanks, guys. This, sorry. Continue, Georgina. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, to add to to your point, Peter, uh, there is also you know around making sure that everyone that joins the company um, and uh, comes in understands what the culture is about, and also make sure that uh, the people that we are within the company understand what interviewing for culture actually is and it's mostly about you know adhering to the same principles like you said be humble for us we have learned constantly um, and be open and transparent and some other but the idea is make sure that when when your team is interviewing they understand that they need to hire people that you know match the company culture rather than adding people that are similar to their personalities and like the same things and like to hang out in the same pubs and talk about the same books and go skiing in the winter thank you Georgiana and thanks all um, that's really interesting that you meant that everybody is very um, clearly mentioning culture as one of the biggest um, uh, like the backbone of, of, the, of, of what it takes to scale up the organization now working with a lot of the, the, the companies that I've worked with um, the, the key thing that we found is a lot of people don't define the culture until it's too late. Um, and by then, a lot of the bad habits have already been stuck, if you know what I mean by bad habits. Um, so first things first is, one, uh, when should we start to define the culture? Um, at which stage? Um, at the very beginning, at the middle, who should be involved in defining the culture? Um, and second thing, one of the other things that we're realizing as well is how do we make the culture authentic and real? instead of just something that we want to be, oh, it's so ideal to have, be humble or to get things done. And, you know, but it might not be real. It might not be authentic to the, the organization, right? It could be just ideal. So two questions. One, it's when should we start defining the culture? And two, how do we make it authentic? Zaina. So I think really all organizations have a culture, even if you, even if you don't define it. I think it's useful to, to try and define it quite early on. And although it's a process that I think HR can help with and, and facilitate, I think it's something that really has to be led and driven uh, right from the top. So it really needs to have the, the C-suite involvement uh, and, and pushing it forward. And I think that's, that's also, in a way, to answer your, your other part of the question, how you make it authentic. Because if it's something that we're just coming up with a load of buzzwords, like you said, it's really not going to have any uh, any impact at all. And sometimes I think it can even be a demotivator for people. Um, so I think getting that level of involvement is really important. For, for me, Nina, I think there are two key things to realize about culture. One, and then about values, because that's essentially what we're talking about, right? I mean, you, you're defining values in a culture. It, so it, it stems from founders in an ideal scenario. But I think two things to realize are, I think on the one hand, um, the wordings are not so different. So it's not about what the phrases are like. It's about whether people believe them or not. 
And I think the way to test that is to see what happens if you if you change them. And I, I can tell you, I can tell you at at Showpad, if you if you change one of the values, and we've actually gone through a whole exercise around it, the the email box, my email box, and the email box of the CEO would explode if you would have if we would decide tomorrow that be humble is no longer a value. So I think it's important if people say, well, they all look the same. The answer is yes, they do. But in some organizations, people believe them, and in others don't. And then the second piece, which is not uh, my insight, but it's actually it's, it's, it's research that Google did, is they kind of looked at how people feel about culture and culture degrades at every stage of growth. And uh, at Google, whether they went, and they started this early, whether you go from 50 to 500 or from 500 to 5,000, et cetera, people are always nostalgic about the culture in their first months. And it's also good to recognize um, in, in your organization that culture degrades at every stage and that you need to kind of update um, the, you know, your values as well. And so we did a large exercise, like a bottom-up exercise with the whole company, uh, with the 250 people about these are our values and we need to kind of update them and, and reflect them. And so uh, to give you a very simple example, we, we had transparency by default as a, as a value at the time when we were a startup and we were sharing literally everything. And so that became be transparent, which is kind of more like we are transparent whenever it is appropriate. But when you get you know over 30 million and you have more than 300 people, you actually don't send an email anymore every time someone leaves just because it's, it's not sustainable. So, but to me, those are two key insights in how culture evolves as you, as you, as you grow. Okay, thank you. Um, Arzish, did you want to say something? I was going to say something. It's funny that I keep, uh, uh, I keep uh, speaking right off to Peter. But um, I think uh, one point that uh, you guys have kind of touched on briefly is um, it's very important for, um, you know, let's say the founders and the early employees have effectively, um, you know, come up with uh, a culture and certain values that, uh, you know, they effectively hold dear and they publicize. Um, it's crucial for the founders to then and the early employees to really lead by example. And I think, um, you know, they have to really, um, you know, continue ascribing and also subscribing to these values and, and, and behaving accordingly. Because if, um, you know, the, at the very top, you have these values and they're not adhered to by the founders themselves, uh, it's a, it's a kind of um, waterfall effect. So um, that's something we've seen in other startups um, and I've heard about, but and we, we try very hard to ensure that even our founders are, held responsible and they hold those um, values uh, close to them and they act accordingly. Thanks for that. Um, now, so you talked about the founders a little bit and I think um, it's, it's actually leading a good segue into one of the questions that I had. Um, what, are the some, what are some things which are key non-negotiables a CEO or a founder or co-founder uh, needs to know when it comes to scaling up? or about scaling talent? I think one of the most important, sorry, is that a question for me? Yes, anyway. I think, I think one of the most important things uh, the, uh, that I would give in terms of advice is to not compromise on hiring. I think it's really tempting, and we found this recently as well, to uh, when you're desperate just to get bums on seats and, and, and get people in, but you're really doing yourself a disservice when you take people on who want up to scratch. It really drags the quality of the whole team down. Um, so I'd say that probably is a, an issue that a lot of people might face. Yeah, um, um, I really agree to, to what you said. It's It shouldn't be about, you know, lowering the standards. It should be about understanding and adapting to the market, 
and making compromises where it makes sense. And they also need to understand that every company from the likes of Facebook, LinkedIn to a five people startup, they struggle to hire great talent. It's not just that we are a small business um, problem. We are scaling really fast. We need to hire talent. Everybody out there and not just in London, it's, it's struggling for talent, both in tech and outside of tech. Um, and I would also um, back to, I guess, something that I said uh, when we discussed about what's important as a company, you know, it's um, it's as a company scaling up, I think they should focus on hiring for diversity at the beginning. As in my experience, this is a very difficult problem to solve while you're, uh, you know, 300 mostly white male company with no women or cultural minorities in leadership roles. You can't fix it afterwards. You've kind of sort of, created this white male dominated culture um, without even wanting to. And it's really hard then to kind of start bringing females in key roles or bringing minorities into key roles or into your teams. I guess it's very tempting to, you know, as referrals, um, referrals programs are in place, it's very tempting for um, colleagues to recommend people that are similar to them. And especially in tech, it happens to be, and here in London, it happens to be like a, a male-dominated culture. Um, at least from my experience, we are like, we have the lowest rate in Europe uh, in females in engineering. Very, very interesting point, Georgiana. I see that, I see that in London very much. Very male-dominated um, application, uh, applicant pool we, we've seen as well for our firm. Um, a few things I'll, I'll add on very quickly. Um, I think uh, the scaling of talent, it's a very challenging affair. Um, on the one hand, you want to add, you know, valuable team members that'll help you achieve your scaling ambitions and you want to do it quickly. But on the other hand, if they're kind of rushed hires, uh, you risk undermining, uh, you know, the progress and your momentum. And actually you could, you know, end up setting your firm back instead of bringing it forward. I think, um, I think, Nina, the question you asked was about some of the key things, um, the founders should keep in mind or know about some of the things that I've kind of jotted down is, um, you know, hiring people and scaling talent. These things require patience, uh, diligence, and transparency. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, patience during the hiring process. Uh, don't rush it. Spend time, you know, get other team members to interview the candidate, et cetera. Uh, diligence on understanding the market you've kind of landed into and also in the approach to identifying and shortlisting these candidates. And finally, transparency when you're um, posed with, you know, difficult and awkward questions by these candidates, uh, you know, try and be honest and give an answer that, you know, you're happy with as opposed to, um, you know, skirting the issue. Um, those are kind of three things that I found very useful when hiring uh, candidates or, or, or talent uh, while scaling. Very helpful. Thank you. Um, completely agree with the with, with everything everyone's just said. And one of the things particularly is transparency about you know, one of the companies I've actually worked with uh, many years ago um, had a great reputation um, when it came to um, culture. And one of the things we had to be was incredibly transparent. Um, we had to tell them the good, the bad, and the incredibly ugly, uh, even made them walk all the way to the toilet and said, come back to us uh, after looking at the toilets if you really want to continue and uh, uh, move ahead in the process. So um, some of you may know who they are. Um, they've just recently uh, made a sale to one of the biggest companies in China. So, um, you know, these things can, can become very successful at the end of the day. I think it's uh, the, some secret. 
uh, being transparent, right? Um, completely, completely agree. Now, um, Georgiana, you talked uh, twice uh, today, earlier today about diversity. Um, we all know that obviously hiring the same type of people is a quick race to the bottom, right? So what are some of the challenges um, surround, uh, like being able to create an environment um, that, that's both diverse and inclusive um, and where people can belong, particularly in the industry that we're in or, or in the business that we're in where you're basically pressure, uh, a lot, a lot of pressure is about, you know, driving the revenue forward, you know, growing the business. Uh, how can, what, what are some of the challenges and how can we um, mitigate it? So I guess the challenge starts from, you know, getting people through the door to keeping them in the company and make sure that they progress in their career and they're not left somewhere behind and they stay into the role for like three, five years and then somebody comes in and steals them away. So I guess it starts from, I get from a recruitment perspective, I would say it would be about, you know, do, doing your due diligence, like removing biases by, you know, language that's biased from job descriptions, from any, every communication that you have. Uh, it can be about looking at, uh, you know, uh, the hiring funnel and seeing what sort of applicants you get and trying to do direct um, sourcing methods to kind of, okay, we only have like male candidates, mostly they are diverse, but they're just male candidates. So we should try to outreach to female candidates. Um, you should organize, it's about organizing events. Uh, it's about opening the doors to your company, to uh, minorities from different groups or different ethnicities. It's um, about showing them how you work, being as transparent as possible, um, I guess it's also about making sure that the hiring managers understand what it's like to manage diverse teams. They understand the challenges that come, 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 the challenge that comes with that, but also the opportunity, because as a lot of studies show recently, diverse teams are the ones that are actually very high performing. And uh, they need to kind of be prepared and understand that everybody comes from different backgrounds and they have their learning curves and they have their kind of a little bit like specific needs. Like, for instance, for me, um, I am not from the UK. So when I first came in here, it was difficult. Like communication was a barrier. I did understand English, uh, but um, I didn't understand, you know, slang or like commonly used language was very difficult for me to understand. Uh, and whenever we are um, talking about something um, and people were using slang, I would snooze out of a meeting because I didn't, I didn't understand it. And also sometimes I may come across as direct just because I'm using like a more formal language. Um, so it's about, and it, it was of great help that my manager understood this. And, uh, you know, helped me kind of overcome this and also, you know, helped me feel part of the team uh, as I was the only non-British person of a 20-something HR team when I first came to London. So I don't know, did I answer your question? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you did. You basically said, you know, how to make someone feel included, right, is to, to you know, welcome with open arms, right? So a lot of the things I think that we culturally, uh, even as people, right, we, when we're speaking to each other, um, people of a certain social economic background, people of a certain uh, uh, education, people of certain, um, you know, gender, basically, we have a certain... Um, 
I call it the common language denominator. I don't actually know if it's a, an actual phrase, um, but it's some uh, it's a common understanding, right? Um, and yeah, and and uh, thanks a lot for that. That's a really really great example. Um, Zaina, do you have or Peter? Uh, any do you have any more examples around around this? Uh, how we could potentially create a more diverse, um, diverse, inclusive environment where people feel like they belong within such a high pressure cooker um, environment. Yeah, I think this is a really, a really, really important topic, especially working in uh, technologies as Babylon's in the technology space. Um, but actually, I wanted to touch on something uh, Georgiana said, because I think it's really important to to recognize as well. It's not always just conscious or unconscious biases that, that influences diversity. I think it's also an acceptance that for, for some roles in some areas, there's just a much smaller talent pool in certain, in certain uh, groups of people. And as a company, I think it's really important that we recognize that we have a responsibility to try and encourage uh, that to grow, you know, whether it's running courses or open days or in you know, the events that Georgiana mentioned. Um, I think that's a really important thing for us to do as well, uh, because ultimately we want to make sure we get the best people um, and we want to make sure we have a diverse uh, work environment too. I think uh, from a Sherpa perspective, I think diversity of any kind, I think is something that comes very natural to us, just who we are. And I think authenticity is an important part of who we are. At the same time, though, um, I think it's also important to, uh, to, to measure if that sentiment is correct. And so we do engagement surveys. And so one of the statements is in there like, is we just we're checking in on that sentiment whether people actually do feel comfortable of you know we we, we make a statement show that creates an environment where anyone of any background uh, feels comfortable and and so and then actually to get an objective um, it, it's part of the HR dashboard to see how that how that evolves and there is a very small very small group of people who um, you know thinks that there there is uh, it's not what where it should be but it. It is important that even though we we have 80 nationalities in the office in Belgium, and uh, I think we have all sorts of diversity, uh, I do think it's still important to keep to, to keep that uh, sentiment objective and, and to keep checking uh, keep checking in as well. Thank you, um, sir. Azish. I'll just add something very quickly. It's a bit of a bit of a funny anecdote. Um, Georgiana, you mentioned, uh, uh, and I'll talk a bit more about the gender um, uh, aspect here. You mentioned language. Um, earlier um, when you were speaking. <clears throat> so we put out a few um, job advertisements here uh, in London uh, on the various portals, etc. And uh, I realized um, a vast majority of our um, applicants were male. I know this is for a business development role, which doesn't have to be, you know, male, it can be female as well, right? So I, I was very puzzled by this. And it turns out um, a friend of mine who's a, a trained psychologist, she looked at the job ad and she said, um, the language you're using is actually um, rather masculine. And uh, so we put it through this little test online. Where you, there's a website you can put your job ads through or your whatever you're going to put through. And uh, it tells you, you know, how masculine is your ad, how feminine, uh, what are the words, et cetera. And uh, it was a very, very eye-opening uh, experience because uh, it was a kind of a subliminal thing. Uh, so we reworked that ad. Um, we've got some consultants who work with us. And effectively what happened is um, we got a large uh, kind of spike in the number of ladies who applied as well. And I think these are the kind of things we learn as we go along, but uh, I thought I'd share that. That's really amazing, is it? What, what website was it? Oh, uh, I can't remember. Do just remember? Uh, Why is it textual? Probably, yeah. Um, Probably right. Interesting.
yeah, I did it. We did it actually recent for all our jobs to see if they're like more feminine or more more masculine. And they kind of ended up scoring 90% or above. So we, we had like a really good, good score. But it's about like choosing your words, literally. So if you use words like nurture a team rather than lead, you get like more more female applicants. Um, so you can balance this because um, it's also about... Um, I think Google made this study and they've changed the job descriptions accordingly. Um, it's about not having too many bullet points as required skills because we we women, we tend to exclude ourselves from the application process at the very beginning if we think we don't match most of the bullet points listed there. So especially like for tech roles where hiring managers tend to, you know, add in every technology that they would like that person to know but it's actually it's actually a nice to have rather than a must because they can you know some of them can 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 be learned on the job especially like working with cloud or with a specific system or tool um so we kind of started doing that and we started like reducing the amount of uh things we have as required skills and actually introducing them at things that you can learn here at Paddle. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm learning a lot today. I hope, um, I hope the audience is feeling the same. Uh, talking about the audience, I have a question that I think um, from the audience that I think is actually really, really helpful and fits in very nicely because we talked about diversity, inclusion, belonging. Uh, we talked about um, culture. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about was focus, mission, vision, purpose, right? Um, so a lot, of, a lot of the times, like, you know, the founders are the ones themselves who came up with their own mission, their own vision for the future, the next three to five years, most of the time, right, in their C-suite. How do you, so as um, people in talent and as, you know, a co-founder or even as a head of a business unit, right, um, how do you maintain the focus on the mission, vision, um, and the direction um, moving forward within a scale-up when a lot of the mindsets, um, the, the, fa the, the, the mindset of the founders are still focused on what they did in order to survive or to succeed as a small business? How can you help them make that transition um, to expand their horizons from a people perspective? Uh, for us, Nina, this was a very big topic when you, I think startups at the beginning, they kind of know what they'll do by the end of the day. And as you grow, that needs to become the end of the week and then the end of the month and then eventually the end of the quarter. And so building a drumbeat and building a cadence into the organization was one of the first things I got, you know, I realized when I came in, I had to do. And so we've done that through working with a quarterly cadence of setting team objectives and also uh, giving people like individual um, focus on what they, what they need to do and combining that with team measuring team effectiveness and also measuring engagement. And so it's not old school sort of performance uh, management. It's really like a, a combination of, of uh, measuring sentiment of, of teams that are growing very quickly, but also providing, just making sure that everyone reflects every three months what they need to focus on and avoiding a little bit that flavor of the week and flavor of the month also for founders, right? Just forcing founders to think about what it is they're going to focus on for the next, uh, for the next three months or the next 12 months. Um, the other thing we have is just from a revenue point of view, we are on this, we have this, we are on, a, on this mission of we, we want to be a hundred million dollar company in 2020. And that actually provides a lot of guidance 
you know, trickling down. Like this, this is what it means in terms of people and what it means in terms of marketing. And, and that gives us a bit that longer term perspective as well. But actually creating a drumbeat and a fast scale up, um, I think is very important. Yes. So that's a very interesting point, Peter. I guess for us, because we are not we are not there at the moment, um, I guess for us is to kind of make sure that uh, people that we talk to when we interview and go through our selection process and eventually join the company understand, I guess, I would say the vision behind the words. Yes, for us, it's like, you know, our vision is to become the platform that all software companies used to run and grow their business which is fair enough. You know, it's a vision. It's a vision statement. It says a lot. However, like it's when you talk to a candidate, you explain, look, you're a small business. You've just started. You have a great product. You want to sell it online, but you have to build a payments team that, you know, you need to have a a team that builds your checkout, that integrates with payment methods. Maybe you want to run some analytics. Maybe you want a subscription model in place. And all of this is like, it takes you away from your focus because your focus is not building a checkout, right? Your focus is, I have this great software program. I want to sell it online. And I want to, you know, that helps people. And I also want to start making some money from it because I've invested in it. So I guess it's about making them understand that we are we are actually making a change. Uh, we uh, have a department uh, that is really good at, you know, talking to um, to our software sellers, explaining them how they can use Paddle more efficiently, and you can see this in the day to day, like from through all departments, from product to engineering to customer support. Everyone is like, okay, let's help the little guy. <laughs> So I guess it's about making them understand this so they can, because right now it's about also doing a little bit of good within the world. So I guess this is really helpful. And you get those people that are really passionate and really want to work about um, and really want to work, help businesses succeed. And they tell you, oh, I've actually built a, a piece of software some time ago. And when I was trying to sell it online, I found Paddle. It was recommended by other people. And they said, it, it's really good. And you've helped me out. It's, it's very interesting and it's always fulfilling. And I think a company's mission um, should be around, you know, also getting like that sense of fulfillment that you're doing something other than making money and keeping a lot of people employed and, you know, using the best practices that you can to, you know, build the products that you do. Thank you. All right. That's very helpful. Thank you, guys. Uh, we're probably running towards the end of time. Um, I just have one last question. Now, what advice would you give to a fellow colleague in the talent industry who wants, who's currently um, scaling up their organization? In one sentence. In one sentence. Everybody, you have a, you have a turn. Um, Anybody wants to go first? Sure, I can go first. Um, I think the the real challenge is being able to implement the initiatives and processes that we as HR professionals all know are necessary uh, to succeed, but doing so in a way that doesn't break that startup culture and make things too corporate. And then you become sort of a a department that's seen as a blocker instead of an enabler. I think that's something that's uh, important to keep at the front of your mind. No. I guess for me, it would be, you know, make sure you build 
great relationships with, with the hiring managers as trust is really important, especially as you're scaling uh, and decisions need to be, to, to be made fast uh, and be pre prepared to assume responsibility for, for these decisions and also have fun because, you know, you, you'll be able to literally see the company grow. I'll, I'll chime in. Um, from my perspective, I think uh, what I would say is um, make sure you have uh, built robust process to guide this scaling because um, you want to take the subjectivity out of hiring and you want to really build a team um, and trust your processes that you've all signed off on uh, together. And for me, the question you constantly have to ask yourself when you hire in a scale-up is what is the right level of experience that you need to bring in because the person you need today is probably not what you need in 12 or 18 months and uh, you have that you know that that's permanent I think um, paradox of you know hiring you know too senior or too junior or too early or too late and I think uh, getting a good sense of what it is you need and also accepting that you only have a relatively short span of time uh, that you can actually run with people if you scale very quickly. But determining that right level, I see a lot of uh, organizations making mistakes and, you know, either shooting too high or shooting too low. Um, yeah. Got it. Thank you. So all in all, if I can kind of summarize this advice, it would be, in a way, draw the organization roadmap to get to the vision um, build the robust processes um, and understand that for every hire it is to basically under, um, to, to figure out what, what problem does this person solve, right, in the short, medium to long run. Um, for HR and for talent, build great relationships and be an enabler to help make the process a much smoother one uh, from the now to the future. Is that right? Yep. Excellent. Okay. Very good. Now, Randy, over to you. Thanks, everybody. We want a special thanks to our audience at Facebook Live. You can catch us every Monday. And thank you to our, our panelists and Nina for, for moderating today. We invite you to visit our website, scaleupacademy.io. You can find out more about us and what we do. And if you find these shows valuable, and we hope that you do, that you'll hit that like button and share today's show. I'm your host, Randy Cantrell, and I hope that you'll join us next week. We'll continue our discussion. We'll be talking about scaling up just in, in a broader view from the C-suite next Monday, July the 9th. Until then, everybody have a great week. Thanks, Randy. Thanks, Nina. Bye. 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 Thanks. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.